to a major development now in the mysterious disappearance of a North Vancouver couple. The husband and wife haven't been seen for 25 years. And as CTV's Penny Daflos reports, investigators have only just now determined they were most likely killed. Banker and stock promoter Nick Massey and his second wife Lisa seemed a happy, successful couple till Christmas of 93. And that's when the secrecy started. They vanished the following July, leaving their families in a heartbroken limbo that spanned a quarter century. The biggest pain for our family, as well as Lisa's family now, remains just the subject of closure. There's the logical part that tells you that they can't be in hiding. And then there's a part of you in your heart that wants them to still be living. But then you'd be really pissed off. This is Cold Case Canada, and you are listening to Missing Without a Trace. It's a 1994 disappearance of Nick and Lisa Massey. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Lisa Massey worked at the Yoko Hair Salon on Canby Street in Vancouver's Mount Pleasant. It's where she met her husband Nick and where she was known as a punctual, hard-working employee. So when Lisa failed to turn up for work one morning in August 1994 and her boss couldn't reach her at home, he called her sister Loretta Leung. The last time anyone at the hair salon had heard from Lisa was when she called her work on Thursday, August 11th, to say that something had come up and she was taking Friday off, but would be back at work the following Tuesday. Tuesday arrived, but Lisa didn't. When Loretta went over to check the Massey's North Vancouver home, she found the door unlocked, the security system was off, and the couple's Chrysler LeBaron convertible was parked in the carport. Spider, the Massey's 17-year-old, much-loved Persian cat, had been left inside without food. The Massey's passports were in the bedroom. Two plastic ties, similar to the ones that the police use for handcuffs, were found just inside the front entrance. Loretta filed a missing persons report with the North Vancouver Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Nick Massey had retired from his job as head of private banking with the Bank of Montreal eight months before the couple disappeared. He'd worked with the bank for 35 years and was a private banker for some of the Vancouver Stock Exchange's most colourful stock promoters. He regularly socialised with high rollers like Murray Pezum, Harry Mole, Nelson Scalbania and Herb Capozzi. Nick ate with them at high-end Vancouver restaurants such as Highs, Al Gardino, and Chardonnays. He went on weekend fishing trips to Sonara Lodge. He flew in private jets to boxing matches in Las Vegas, and he stayed at their Scottsdale mansions. He was a guest at one of Murray Pezum's weddings on a $3 million luxury yacht. And as the director of Ballet BC, he regularly organised fundraising events. At the time of his disappearance, Nick served as president of the Netherlands Businessmen's and Professionals Association. His son Nick Jr. told Vancouver Sun reporter David Baines that he enjoyed the house street life and made no secret of that. Nick Massey knew his way around the Vancouver Stock Exchange and he was known to invest in his clients' deals. 
Before the VSE finally disappeared in 2001, it boasted that it was the third major stock exchange in Canada, raising a billion dollars in venture capital. In reality, it was little more than a legalised gambling joint, where a 1979 study commissioned for the BC government found that investors in the VSE lost 84% of their money some of the time, and all of their money 40% of the time. Scams were numerous and usually involved shell companies that ranged from fictional gold mines to a mining company that morphed into an official bat sanctuary before going to real estate to a video vending machine company that transformed into a biomedical outfit. One of the biggest players on the VSE was Harry Mole. Mole was infamous as the boss of the Pine Ridge Capital Group. The company ran several sketchy VSE startups, including Cross Pacific Pearls, which Harry Mole touted would grow the world's biggest pearl in a Honolulu shopping centre. It didn't. Pine Ridge imploded in 1992, and it sparked one of many government inquiries into the Vancouver Stock Exchange. Mole was turfed out of the exchange, and he took up residence in the Grand Cayman Islands. Murray Pezum, another of Nick's clients, had lost as many fortunes as he made. A legendary and probably the most colourful promoter to hit the Vancouver Stock Exchange, he was the brains behind the Hemlo gold mine and the Vitapez rejuvenation pills. At one time, Pezum owned the BC Lions football team. Nick Massey had been a top-ranking junior tennis player and he still loved to play. One of his associates from his banking days and a frequent tennis partner was Nelson Scalbania. Scalbania was a flamboyant promoter who was always in the news. At one point, he owned a $2.7 million de Havilland jet, a 53-metre diesel yacht called Chimon, the Montreal Alouettes Football Club, the Vancouver Canadiens Baseball Club and the Edmonton Oilers Hockey Club, although this was not all at the same time. At the time the Masseys went missing, Scalbania was on trial for stealing $100,000 from a former business associate's trust fund. Nick Massey was scheduled to testify as a witness for the prosecution. Police told reporters that he was only a minor witness who was testifying against Scalbania and they didn't believe that the court proceedings against Scalbania had anything to do with the disappearance of the Masseys. But Nick certainly looked the part of the successful businessman. At 55, he was trim, he was 5 foot 7 with a perpetual tan, he wore gold jewellery, he had blonde grain hair, blue eyes, and a very attractive second wife, who was 16 years his junior. But while the Masseys may have associated with the rich and powerful, they were living way beyond their means. As a banker, Nick had pulled in around $85,000 a year. Their modest North Vancouver house was heavily mortgaged and they owed $70,000 on their credit cards. Lisa worked at the hair salon six days a week and she took private clients at the house. Unlike their jet-setting contemporaries, Nick and Lisa's getaway was a timeshare in Maui. Nick was born in the Netherlands and he had two children from his first marriage. 
Nick Jr., who at the time of his father and stepmother's disappearance, was an executive with a moving company in Singapore, and Tanya, who lived in and still lives in Holland. Nick Jr. was given and passed a lie detector test, saying that he had not heard from his father. At the time of his disappearance, Nick Massey was banking that his new venture as a director of a Vancouver stock exchange startup called Tiburdine Technologies would propel him into the big leagues. Tiburdine was developing a device to cut emissions from diesel engines, and it was Nick's job to look after the corporate budget and set up evaluations for the company's anti pollution device. It was all a scam, and it's hard to believe that Massey wouldn't have known that. In 1995, several months after the Masseys went missing, investigative reporter Terry Gould wrote a feature for Vancouver Magazine. In it, he claims that Massey was a money guy behind a $110 million illegal arms deal. The brokers and the promoters with connections to the Vancouver Stock Exchange raked in huge gobs of money, and the exchange attracted money from all sorts of sources including arms dealers, drug lords, biker gangs and organised crime. Connections to the exchange were often lethal. In the 1980s and 90s, a lot of people connected to Howe Street's stock scene went missing or showed up dead. In 1972, William Fats Robertson lost his trading privileges on the VSE for manipulating the share price of two junior mining companies. Six years later, he was back in the headlines when he was caught heading up a major drug smuggling ring. Robertson was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in jail. Several key witnesses were given money to relocate and forge new identities. Robertson served half his sentence and had his trading privileges reinstated by the Vancouver Stock Exchange. He was back in the news in 2003 when a former insurance salesman from West Vancouver who moonlighted as a hitman, said Robertson had contracted his services for two murders in 1969. In March 1987, VSE promoter Guy Lamarche was shot to death in Toronto's Royal York Hotel. In May 1990, Vancouver stock promoter Ray Gennetti's 48-year-old body was found stuffed inside a closet in his West Vancouver home. He'd been shot in the head. Ginetti was rumoured to be selling stock for a mineral exploration company that had gang ties, and his funeral was attended by a mixture of business people and bikers. In August 1996, Terence Watts, a 41-year-old former broker with a history of shady stock deals, was found dead in Chinatown. He'd been shot and his body stuffed into the trunk of his car. In January 1997, David Ward was found dead in his Nissan Pathfinder. Like Watts and Ginetti, Ward was shot in the head gangland style. Ward's vehicle was double parked on East Pender Street near Playland. The engine was still running, his money and jewellery untouched. Ward had been convicted of stock manipulation and making secret commission payments, totaling more than $15 million. He served eight months of a three-year sentence. Rumours circulated that he was involved with drugs and that he'd managed to hide millions in secret offshore accounts before forensic accountants recovered about $5 million. I started work in the Public Relations Department of the Vancouver Stock Exchange back in 1987 
The same year that David Cruz and Alison Griffiths published Fleecing the Lamb, the inside story of the Vancouver Stock Exchange. It was my job to get the new visitor centre up and running, so investors had somewhere to check their stock prices. And we could put polite spins on the swindles that haunted the exchange. Then schoolchildren and tourists could learn about penny stocks and not about shady deals, market manipulations and the rumours of money laundering. I was still at the VSE in 1989 when a cover story in Forbes magazine called the VSE the scam capital of the world. I never met Nick Massey, but I was very aware of the colourful stock promoters who hung around the exchange. I left the dark side in 1989 to pursue journalism. And in 1992, I started work as a business reporter for the Vancouver Sun. But I've always had a fascination for the story of Nick and Lisa Massey. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Leon Nowak, Nick Massey's partner in Turbidine Technologies, was apparently the last person to hear from the Masseys on the day that they went missing. Strangely, it was Lisa who called him at 10am on Thursday, August 11th, to say they were going away for a few days, and then Nick would phone him later. Shortly before calling Nowak, Lisa had phoned the hair salon where she worked to tell them that she wouldn't be in the next day, but would see them the following Tuesday. Lisa used Nick's cell phone to make the calls, which were routed through the Bowen Island cell site. On the day before their disappearance, Lisa had told a friend she worked with that a man from California had contacted Nick about a possible business deal. He had told Nick that they'd met when he worked at the Bank of Montreal and that he had $10 million that he wanted to invest. The man said he was interested in Tiberdoin Technologies. He told Nick that he'd send a limo to his house and they'd have dinner at Trader Vic's, a well-known haunt for traders and promoters that was connected to the Western Bayshore in Coal Harbour. Trader Vic's closed in 1996, two years after the Masseys disappeared, and I remember going there a few times in the late 80s. It had been really fancy in the 60s, and it still had a certain cachet towards the end. It was a tiki bar, and it was a leftover, really, from the days when Hawaiian-themed restaurants and bars were huge and Mai Tais were the drink of choice. It was a favourite restaurant of the Masseys, and not surprising that they would take potential business associates to eat there. We know that Nick phoned Trader Vicks and booked a table for four for dinner at 8.30 that night. And we know that Lisa was sceptical about the whole deal. She had told a friend, Teresa, that she had a hard time believing that a businessman had $10 million that he didn't know what to do with. She thought the whole thing was a bit weird. Tommy Chang supervised the dining room and knew the Masseys well. He reserved a window seat that looked out over Coal Harbour and the North Shore Mountains. Nick called to say they'd be delayed, 
But when the Masseys and their guests hadn't arrived by 9.30, Chang gave away their table. He was surprised because Nick had always been punctual in the past. Next to the immediate family, only Nick's friend Walter Davidson, a former social credit MLA and Speaker of the House, seemed concerned that the Masseys were missing. Davidson told reporters that he wouldn't answer their questions because he was scared for his life. He added to one reporter that he thought the Masseys were fish food. That's such a bizarre thing to tell the media, especially from a media-savvy seasoned politician. No record was ever found of a limo rental sent to the Massey address. There was some evidence that Nick and Lisa were on the run. The Masseys had taken a mysterious trip to the Cayman Islands in the April before their disappearance, not telling anyone where they were going. While they were there, they set up a bank account in the Caymans with $50,000 worth of stock. They also had their wills drawn up. Similarities were drawn with Fred Hoffman, another disappearing Dutchman who belonged to the same association as Nick and who Nick had introduced to other members of Metro Vancouver's Dutch community. Hoffman, a church treasurer and Vancouver Stock Exchange promoter, returned the favour by stealing more than $10 million from the life savings of seniors and parishioners and then running off with their money. He left in April 1991, three years before the Massey's disappearance. In 1993, the Mounties put Hoffman on the top 10 most wanted list, but by that time he'd fled to Tasmania in Australia, changed his name to Pete Walters and bought a mansion, a Rolls Royce and two Jaguars. Hoffman as Walters claimed to be the son of Dutch royalty. He flew the royal family's flag and he wore the family emblem on the day of his $60,000 wedding. He kept ripping off seniors and other investors until he was caught in 2003 and sentenced to eight years in jail. The last article I could find about him was in 2007 when he was out of jail and fighting extradition back to Canada. Nick Massey had referred clients that he dealt with at the Bank of Montreal to Hoffman. One of them was Quentin Johnson, a wealthy Seattle-based doctor who was bilked out of a couple of million dollars. There have been no reports of the missing Masseys turning up in Tasmania. When the Masseys first went missing, there were rumours of kidnapping, there were also rumours of witness protection, but it's much more likely that the Masseys were murdered, their bodies dumped somewhere in the Georgia Strait. Because there was also plenty of evidence that the Masseys didn't leave voluntarily. Lisa was about to celebrate her 40th birthday in just a few weeks, and her colleagues at the hair salon had planned a weekend away in Whistler. She was also to be a bridesmaid at her cousin's wedding. Shortly after they went missing, stock promoter Murray Pezum told Vancouver Sun reporter David Baines that he didn't know if Massey's disappearance was connected to the VSE, but he said, I'll tell you one thing, number one, it's money. Herb Cabozzi, another one of Nick's banker clients, told David Baines that Massey was as straight as an arrow. He's the kind of guy that if he won money in a poker game, he would claim it on his income tax. Unsubstantiated rumours began circulating that Nick had guaranteed Harry Mole's gambling debts, and those debts were sold to a local biker gang. A variation on that theme went that Nick may have either deliberately or accidentally got involved with laundering a motorcycle gang's drug money. 
Massey's children believe he's dead. In 2001, Nick Jr. and his sister Tanya petitioned the BC Supreme Court and had their father declared dead. Back then, Tanya said in a court statement, My father was always a very open man who enjoyed sharing details of what was happening in his life and work. However, in the six months before his disappearance, he became very guarded about his life, and in particular, the details of his work. Furthermore, he seemed concerned for his safety. If they did do a runner, or, as another rumour suggested, entered witness protection, they left without a trace. Their passports were left in the house, their bank accounts and credit cards unused, and leaving the family cat behind would have been a cruel but convincing touch. North Vancouver RCMP Corporal Gord Reed is keeping an open mind. This is an interview that I did with him back in 2015. Just an investigation point of view, whether you approach murder and a missing person the same way. Very similarly, yeah. You know, with the Masseys, we don't have a crime scene per se. So, I mean, that's obviously, a, you know, a, a crucial difference. We don't know that they were murdered. And obviously, when somebody's been missing for a long time, we, the assumption that they might have been murdered yeah, gets, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. We get loads of missing people, and most of them aren't murdered. So a missing persons investigation, we're not going to ramp it up and start investigating it like a homicide on day one. If we mm. did that, we, we, you know, we right. wouldn't be able to do anything else. The Massey file got investigated thoroughly like a murder pretty early on because as missing people files went it was an outlier and it, there were more uh, red flags on that file than on most missing people files so so you know it was investigated like a murder in the sense that the principles of what we call major case management were applied so you have a team and so those principles were applied to this investigation and it was it was it's a big fat investigation where you know banking records and and, and you know who crossed the border and interviews of friends and you know, all those kinds of things were done, and then some were done fairly recently because I, you know, I've, I've done things on that file myself mm. uh, w- when they seem reasonable or viable. I've received a couple of tips in the last couple of years, and, and in flipping through the file folders, uh, you know, occasionally say so-and-so who was an odd witness 20 years ago is now 82 years old and maybe is willing to say something they didn't say before, so let's re-interview them just because that was a weird interview they gave 20 years ago, you know. But so, so yeah, so really very, very similar uh, to a murder investigation at this point. So which way are you leaning, missing or murdered? I'm, I'm not leaning, I'm, and I'm truly <laughs> not. Boy, it's a head-scratcher because I've got missing people who I, I really assume are murdered because they're not the kinds of people who would be able to disappear, whereas, you know, they were. He was a, you know, he's a sophisticated guy. They both had passports from other countries. They'd lived around the world. Uh, he understood international banking. They had some money stashed aside. They had, you know, like, like they, if somebody wanted to disappear, they would be much better equipped to do it than most people. He was in that world, you know, where mm-hmm. there were so many shady players, uh, but sort of high-end shady players. Mm-hmm. And when he left the Bank of Montreal, he was working for this company, Turbodyne, as mm-hmm. a stock promoter. And that was a scam. It was like a, it was like a tech Briex company in, in California, right? Like they had purported to have developed some new engine technology that was going to cut in half the world's requirement for fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And they were going to make bazillions of dollars, and it was a one great big huge scam. People got bilked out all kinds of money, and uh, and so you know he was representing them. But what does that mean? Because <laughs> ultimately, what this remains is a mystery, and I, yeah. I don't want to get tunnel vision. Uh, yeah. It's a mystery. We don't know what happened to them. So, as far as the public can help, what sort of leads would you 
would be helpful to you? On this case, I mean, mm. I guess, gosh, I don't, want, I don't want to limit it, but, I, you know, a bunch of red herrings don't help me either. Uh, like, you know, I got a tip last year that somebody saw them in the Cayman Islands, and, and when I, you know, did a bunch of work, and we finally got uh, driver's license pictures of this American couple who was them. It was a white guy and an Asian lady who are both in their 40s today. And I thought, like, what on earth makes them the Masseys, other than it's a white guy and an Asian lady, which is like a million couples in North America. And so, like, those kinds of tips, we can waste weeks, you know, and it's just because some well-meaning person thinks, oh, boy, the police want everything, and that's just a waste of our time. You know, when I ask for tips, I don't want to discourage people who have something to say, Mm. but at the same time, I don't want to generate a bunch of time wasters. So I would say anybody with genuine knowledge of them, of their lives, uh, that might add insight, I mean, that's pretty broad still, but, you know. uh, So do you think someone who may not have talked 20 years ago would be sort of maybe more willing now? Well, absolutely. In the Mm. fullness of time, people, you know, religious conversions, they get cancer, they realize that, you know, and I've had that happen. So, um, gosh, if anybody who has knowledge wants to come forward, you know, there's no way if they were killed, there's no way that there's people without knowledge. You know, I mean, there's got a bunch of people must have known, right? Mm. Just last year, in August 2019, Nick Massey's children, Tanya and Nick Jr., travelled to Canada for the 25th anniversary of their father and stepmother's disappearance. They held a press conference and announced that they were doubling the reward to $50,000 for any information that could help solve the mystery. Sergeant Peter DeVries of the RCMP told reporters that police believe that somebody has information that can help close a case, but were too scared of the people involved back then to come forward. This is the sergeant talking at the press conference in a CTV news clip. The evidence surrounding the disappearance of Nick Massey Sr. and Lisa Massey was never quite sufficient to lead investigators to say conclusively that they vanished because they were victims of some sort of crime. The circumstances were mysterious. They were concerning. But the facts did not allow investigators to determine conclusively if they had been kidnapped or murdered or the victims of some other crime. Nothing's changed in the years since that press conference. The Masseys are listed as a missing persons case with suspicious circumstances. Tanya and Nick Jr. still want to find out what happened to their father. They've recently hired a private investigator to try and turn up more information. I talked to him about the case, and while he asked me not to use his name and has yet to turn up new leads, he had some interesting theories. His problem, he said, was that there are no bodies. If it was a professional hit, which has happened several times over the years, the bodies were always left as a message to others. They were found either stuffed in a closet or in the car or by the side of the road. If someone wanted Nick dead, there were plenty of opportunities. So why kill Lisa? And finally, if it's about money, where's the money trail? Currently, the North Vancouver RCMP detachment has 55 missing person investigations and the Masseys remain their largest. The case sits inside four cardboard banker boxes that contain details of the 26-year-old mystery, including interviews with associates, banking records, travel records, photos of their house, documents found inside the house and photographs of the couple. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eva coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Please visit my website, evelazarus.com, for more information on my books and podcasts. If you'd like to join in the conversation about this and other cases, check out the Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada.